first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. stuck at home. We can't go to our offices. Kids might not be able to go back to school. And the only way we can all go back to our lives before the coronavirus hit and ruined everything is to perhaps have a vaccine that works and that people take and that it can be distributed everywhere around the world. But there's one big problem. Individual countries are coming up with their own vaccines, or at least trying to come up with their own vaccines, and it may make it harder for all of us to get the treatment we need. That's why on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we are going to talk about vaccine nationalism. This is the big trend, the big problem that could be delaying why you and I may not get a vaccine anytime soon and why certain countries are not working with others when they should be at such a crucial time. Uh, I'm Alex Ward. Jen Williams and Zach Peacham are not here, but we are so lucky, as always, to have Jen Kirby, who will join us. And I think I get to actually call you Jen today. I think so. Yeah. Hey, Alex, how are you? I'm good. I'm actually genuinely excited to get to call you Jen today because I always feel bad uh, <laughs> calling you Kirby, uh, although you are a fan of it and you are it's a nickname uh, you're okay with. But still, like, I, you know, calling you by your own name seems appropriate. Uh, uh, I feel very lucky. <laughs> I know. Well, what a treat, right? So it's just me, you and me, which is exciting anyway, because you did a phenomenal explainer on vaccine nationalism and what it means. And on top of that, I know you have a piece coming out soon. Hopefully, uh, while we're recording, it will be edited about uh, Russia. Before we get into what vaccine nationalism sort of means, I think it's important to start with the, the bigger news item, um, which is that Russia has announced that they have a vaccine, that they're the, and they're going to start using it on its own people and sending it around the world. Rodrigo Duterte, Philippines president, is like, yeah, I'm ready to take this. So I, I want to know why, one, Russia seems to have this thing, what it means, and how this will then impact vaccine nationalism, which we're going to talk about in just a bit. So take it away, Russia. Yeah. So I guess earlier this week, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin said that, you know, that he's got it. He's got a coronavirus vaccine. It's approved and worked. He said his daughter even took it. Um, the problem is we don't really know all that much about this vaccine. And it's one thing that does seem clear is that whatever this vaccine is, hasn't gone through sort of the late stage or sometimes called phase three clinical trials, which is when you give the vaccine to a bunch of people, all different thousands of people, and you kind of see 
if A, the vaccine is effective, if it prevents people from getting infected, and if and then B, if it's safe, that there's no major side effects um, because you're giving it to a really, really big and diverse population. And so Russia doesn't seem to have gone through this massively critical step. And that is making scientists, global health experts and everyone enormously freaked out right now. That seems dangerous because if you're going to give uh, a pretty powerful you know, piece of medicine to a bunch of people, you would want it to be thoroughly tested and make sure that it works. And the fact that Russia is about to give this uh, you know, hopefully good, like we all want it to work, right? This hopefully good medication to a bunch of people that could be costly, deadly, bad for people's health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I talked to one expert who kind of put it very interestingly to me who said, it's not actually that hard to like make the vaccine. Like a lot of companies, many of them we've heard about, Moderna, the Oxford University vaccine are kind of at this process now. I mean, but the real question is, is this going to offer, you know, protection, ideally long-lasting protection? And is it going to be, um, you know, safe for people that there's no kind of really incredibly bad side effects? I mean, yes, it's likely that you may get, you know, sometimes a reaction. But the point is you need to know what those are so you can warn people and say, hey, don't worry, this isn't serious. And so the fact that Russia doesn't appear to have gone through the steps and it's not quite clear if they're kind of improving it and approving it and then going to try to do the clinical trials, even though they say they have it, or if they're going to start distributing it, it's not all that clear right now. And that's what's causing a lot of, of, of concern. And of course, as you mentioned, it's dangerous, not just because we don't know the physical reaction, but because, you know, if it doesn't work, you know, all of these, you know, there's a lot of vaccine skepticism, a lot of vaccine hesitancy. That's going to make it much, much, much harder, not just for the coronavirus uh, vaccination, but also for all kinds of other really important um, vaccinations that we need to give people to protect our public health. So, okay, this is a very important because about three things kind of came to mind as you were saying that. The, the first is like when I watch TV and usually the, you know, the uh, medication commercials come on, it's like side effects may include, and it's like 39 minutes of that. Uh, we don't even know what those side effects would be, assuming that we all got access to this Russian vaccine. Two is people could take it and assume it worked and go about and live their daily lives and, and perhaps transmit the coronavirus more and more. And then uh, three is uh, they take it, it doesn't work. People still get the coronavirus and they go, well, vaccines don't work. And that sort of erodes trust in vaccines over time. So the rolling out something like this, saying it works when we do not know that it does. Again, I think we all hope that it does. But if it doesn't, this could actually imperil the recovery, the global recovery over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those are. Yeah, you hit all of the top points, right? We don't we want the vaccine to be able to. Um, you know, help us slow the outbreak. But if we don't even know how effective it is, we don't know. We can't just say like, go out and go back on your lives. So all of those things, you know, Russia by what it seems to have done by cutting corners is kind of imperiling that. Of course, we don't really know because, you know, we have to remember who's saying it, which is Vladimir Putin and not the scientists. And so we have to, you know, when we hear anything Putin says, we have to take it with a pretty big grain of salt. Yeah, a rock assault, honestly. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> this guy, uh, I mean, I, you know, the, the years spent covering him now, but all to say that with Russia having a bunch of issues, right, he's dealing with a massive coronavirus problem himself. Moscow's in, in dire straits. A lot of the country's protesting against him. He's currently going through this pretty odd political transition where he's trying to basically be president for life instead of leaving office. What he needs, and you know, I, I always say this on this show, but dictators have politics too. And and so for a guy like this to say, 
you know, when his back's against the wall, like I solved it. I solved the world's problems. Here's the vaccine. This should be seen more in a political dictatorial lens than a scientific one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is for Russia's domestic political audience and it's for, you know, Russia's international audience as well. Um, You know, the vaccine is named Sputnik V. for Oh, oh, is it? (laughs) It is. If that's not the craziest sort of propaganda nod, I don't know what is. And you know, if you go to the website, it has uh, one of my sources like t- turned me onto the website and you can actually like play the sound and you hear the Sputnik beep when you go to the <laughs> vaccine website. It's like a little too on the nose, I think. And I mean, but essentially, President Putin wants to say, we have created this. This is about Russia's scientific and technical prowess. And he wants the rest of the world to buy into that. And he wants, you know, his his own people to believe, oh yeah, Russia's back, we're, we're leading the world. And so, yeah, it really is a, a political ploy for sure. All right, I would love to talk about Sputnik for uh, a thousand years. I think that's such a phenomenal moment in like the Cold War. But very quickly, like since you covered this, why use Sputnik here? What Why would this make sense sort of as, as a historical analogy for this vaccine? Yeah, so uh, the Sputnik was the first satellite into space during the Cold War. And it kind of woke up the world to like, oh, man, Russia's ahead. And the U.S. was like, ah, we got to catch up. And so, you know, some people, I think wrongly for a lot of reasons, and we can get to that later, is framing the vaccine race as sort of this 21st century space race. And so Russia's basically saying, hey, guys, we won. (laughs) So actually, the space race is a sort of a beautiful transition to this vaccine nationalism thing, right? Because we could sort of use a, a very loose analogy where um, the space race is kind of happening now with the vaccine, right? Everyone is trying to be the first or to get the most successful item, uh, which is the vaccine that works, which can be distributed around the world and uh, perhaps get us out of this coronavirus mess that we're all a part of. Uh, in your piece, and and what uh, I, I found interesting is that it, and of course we will link to it in the show notes, but it, it is surprising to me you know, no, having now read a bunch of histories of, of pa- previous pandemics based on the moment we're in and because I, we all have time on our hands now, um, <laughs> is there used to at least be a sort of like global feeling of let's all put in our chips into the same pot and let's try to get the same sort of vaccine and let's uh, make sure that it works and let's test it and let's find ways to distribute it around the world. Obviously, countries still always had a sense of like, well, my people get it first and whatever. I mean, that that was always true. But it seems that we've now entered a sort of hyper-competitive age where any country, based on their own political needs, if you're Putin, based on national prestige issues, maybe if you're China, um, if you're, I just like being first and the best in America, everyone's trying to get their own vaccine. And this is causing competing strains to to get it and therefore may actually hinder um, and and complicate the way we all would, would get the vaccine distributed to us in the way that we would want down the line. Am I sort of getting this right, even though I'm muddling a bunch of analogies and, and thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at its sort of very most simplistic vaccine nationalism is if I'm the United States and I get the vaccine first, I'm going to give it to the United States first. And then maybe if I have some leftover, I'll see who else needs it. Um, But the idea is really like, I'm looking out for me and I'm going to get it first and I'm going to invest my time and resources and, you know, production capacity and whatever I can do. And of course, that advantages rich countries like the United States and like China. I mean, without getting into like the nitty gritty of, you know, vaccine supply chains, which is complicated and does complicate this broadly. But the U.S. does have the capacity to sort of, you know, help ramp up production at home, whereas Argentina or Kenya 
does not have that capacity in the same kind of way. And the reality is, you know, with the coronavirus, a pandemic, an outbreak in one place is a threat to everywhere. And so if we still have places in the world where the outbreak, where the coronavirus is not under control, it's going to still cripple global trade. It's going to still triple, cripple global travel. And so what sort of the counter to vaccine nationalism is how do we, in a world where there's going to be limited dosages, how do we get it to the people on the front lines who are most vulnerable so that sort of broadly the world is protected as we sort of get down the line? All right. That's a really good summary. And I, I kind of want to take off bit by bit of this. So first, okay, anytime I've been on a plane in the before times, what they always said was in case of cabin pressure failure, right, you put on your own mask and then you help out someone else. So what what is so bad about like, you know, Russia gets it first, China gets it first, uh, America gets it first. Like what's so wrong with giving it to your people, making sure your country's good? I mean, again, people have politics and leaders need to do that. And then helping everyone else out. Like, why is that such a bad thing? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think it's, it's a comp, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, I'm a U.S. taxpayer. My dollars are going to this operation warp speed, you know, that's supposed to invest billions in a vaccine. We're, you know, still have a democratically elected government, which is supposed to be accountable to its people. And like, yeah, I mean, they're working for us and we should get a vaccine. But I think, and I think nobody, even people who very much believe vaccines are a global public good and we should cooperate think that we're going to totally eliminate that element from the equation. I think it's pretty impossible. But at the same time, does it make sense to vaccinate me, who's a healthy, you know, 30-something individual in the United States who can work from home and can sort of avoid public transit and isn't taking care of an elderly person or a young child? Or does it make sense to, you know, vaccinate a frontline healthcare worker in, you know, Liberia? So it's like, and and or does it make sense to vaccinate, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, migrant workers who are traveling around to different places and might be spreading a virus? So those are things that are we have to consider when we say what will be the most effective use of the limited amount of vaccines that we have. So it's not necessarily like nobody in the United States should get it, but maybe we should prioritize the most vulnerable, our essential workers, our frontline workers. And then maybe we can come back to the second round for people who might, if they were to get the coronavirus, you know, are not the most vulnerable people, let's just say. But that's such a complicated question, right? Like who's an essential worker? Like, I mean, yeah, right. That's such a complicated question because you could, you know, nurses, doctors, fine. Uh, That all makes sense. Teachers, perhaps, if we consider education such a big deal. Um, how about ambulance drivers? How about grocery store workers? Uh, you know, people in the supply chain. I mean, who it, you would have to, con- and not only just, of course, in the U.S., but as you mentioned, Liberia. You know, tons of places around the around the world. Like that would almost be a philosophical discussion, a scientific discussion of the highest proportions and the sense of global coordination that we're nowhere near. So, how could we even start to tackle that question? Right. But that's why the nationalism question is so naughty, right? Because we're not even having those discussions, which are very critical ethical discussions. I mean, that it is complicated. There is no easy answer. And who and defining essential worker is very difficult. But if we automatically say we're just going to and let's be real, even if the U.S. gets a vaccine, not it's not going to be enough for everyone in this country, whether they like it or not. But if we actually discuss these questions out in the open, then we might actually have a better sense. And then that 
may be a more effective tool. And, you know, so uh, healthcare workers first, and then maybe like people over 65 or something like that. But yeah, these are very naughty questions. And then it also gets to the question of who are our own people? You know, we've seen horrible outbreaks in, you know, you know, meatpacking plants. We've seen horrible outbreaks in prisons. And I think politically that would be a difficult sell, even though that might be the most effective use of vaccines. So even when we say, oh, well, we'll take care of our own first. Well, when we ask who our own is, that's a really, really difficult and, as you say, like complicated ethical question that is not easy to answer. I appreciate your use of the word naughty because I think both in terms of like a not and also just it is genuinely naughty that we're having uh, <laughs> that we're not having uh, this sort of global cooperation. OK, so I'm getting a couple of things so far from this conversation, one that it may not be so hard to make a vaccine, but it's really hard to make sure that it's safe and, and usable Two, um, that there is a general impulse for like individual countries to want to make their own vaccines and want to treat their own people. But then you lead it to into three, which is, well, it's complicated as to who should get it first and whether or not you could actually distribute it safely and all that fun stuff. So I guess it brings me to the sort of bigger question when we talk about vaccine nationalism, which is, okay, why do we get into this individualistic mess? Why don't we have the global cooperation? What is happening in the world at the moment where you can't have, you know, Russia, China, the U.S. can't put their, you know, issues aside and go, okay, we're, we're all working on like one in one pathway here to get a solution. What, why the nationalism in the first place? Yeah. And I think to, to speak to that, you have to look at what happened or where the world was when the coronavirus, you know, emerged, so to speak. Like we were already in this very kind of, I don't think hostile is the right word, but we know we have the Trump administration, which has always pursued an America first policy and has, you know, backed away from global cooperation, backed away from our longstanding alliances, uh, backed away from or even tried to actively undermine multilateral institutions. So, you know, we have that. Then we have this competition between the United States and China. And we, of course, have China's missteps in the early stages of the coronavirus, which, you know, I think we can all agree helped create uh, what we're some of what we're dealing with now. And um, we also have, you know, a revanchist Russia. So we have all of those sort of chessboard pieces existing before we even got started. And then, and we also had trade wars, which, you know, predated this, which makes sort of global cooperation on distribution hard. So all of that stuff was kind of happening before the coronavirus came. And then all of those tensions were exacerbated to the highest level. You have Trump pulling out of the World Health Organization, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to get into all of these. I think they're important backdrop. I mean, since we've talked about nationalism and complications, I think we should get into sort of how, you know, why all these pre-existing tensions, let's call them pre-existing conditions, yeah. <laughs> uh, are exacerbating the the world patient uh, to completely ruin this metaphor um, uh, and, and complicated situation we're in. And we'll get to it right after the break. Welcome back, worldly listeners. Uh, where we left off was it, before we got into this moment where you had individual countries trying to get their own vaccines and complicating the way we all get it, um, there were some problems with uh, just foreign policy in general. And one of the things I've been thinking about for, for quite a bit as we think about you know how China, Russia, the U.S. are, are players in this, uh, you rightly mentioned that, of course, we've had the trade war with uh, China. We've had the election interference issue with Russia and a whole bunch of other um, problems with both, and, and other countries, of course, are involved in this. But, and this is a sort of a grander point, I think, and or by grander, I mean like 30,000 foot level, not like this is the greatest point of all time. But I think it's interesting that the U.S. has been solving its problems 
with other countries a lot, uh, um, usually with military tools, with economic sanctions, with all that. And we've really undervalued uh, diplomatic relations, and we've also undervalued scientific ones, which arguably are a part of foreign relations as well, a, a, a minor one, obviously, but but still one nonetheless. And when you get to a situation like this, like I always consider diplomacy, I mean, one, it's a, just a useful tool of statecraft. You need it. But it is an insurance policy. You need ties to people and you need conversations with even enemies in order to de-escalate situations, to better muddle through crises. And when you've atrophied that muscle, which we have, we're, we are unable to kind of go to the Russians and say, hey, guys, you know, we need to do X, Y, Z things. Go to the Chinese. Yeah, we know we're, gonna, we're fighting, but like, let's figure this out. Now, of course, that's also on the Chinese and the Russians and others, too. Like, you know, they don't have to be mean and do bad stuff to us. But at the same time, if you don't exercise that diplomatic muscle en enough, or you also, you know, like take money away from the State Department and scientific research organizations in the U.S., then it's going to be harder to muddle through something like this. Or in fact, we are muddling through. It's going to be harder to um, make the connections that you need and perhaps coalesce a, a global movement. And so it's interesting to me when I hear like, you know, Joe Biden talk about stuff like this when I hear now Kamala Harris, uh, they're talking a lot about not only like the U.S. leading again in the coronavirus response, but really bolstering diplomatic tools as a way to to get through a crisis like this, but also just other crises that will inevitably pop up uh, down the line. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to that point, it's not even, it, there is global cooperation, but there's also the the problem where science has sort of become politicized. I mean, the thing is the scientists themselves, you know, many of these vaccine researchers, as they should, are publishing their studies, are being transparent about where they are in the stage of the game. And the problem is when you kind of get politics involved, it kind of makes it hard for scientists to kind of do their job and coordinate and collaborate, which would sort of help everybody because, you know, in theory, if, you know, you know, the UK were to get a vaccine first, but to help share that information with other people, then maybe we could all get a vaccine faster. So that's the other problem is that the cooperation also makes it hard for the scientists who I think genuinely are cooperative and do very much believe in sort of the global public good. I mean, we even saw at the start of the pandemic that the Chinese scientists did sort of give the the mapping of the, you know, the coronavirus COVID-19 so that people were able to make their tests. Like that's an example of where working cooperatively like makes it better for everyone. And we've kind of decided, oh, well, if I take care of myself, then I'll be fine. But that just doesn't work in a pandemic. And it also, if we all kind of work together and put our heads together, it sounds a little bit cheesy, but the odds that we'd have a treatment or vaccine much faster would also probably be the case. And I think, as you were saying, with these global organizations, we don't really have kind of a central leadership that is sort of helping to coordinate that. And whether that is the United States or not is, you know, one question. But I mean, some countries are trying to lead the way. But then you also have this counter where you have China and Russia saying, no, a vaccine is actually a global public good. We're going to give it to people. But then you have China and Russia advancing their own, you know, international interests, pursuing sort of a vaccine diplomacy. And without the United States, which, you know, maybe obviously we're biased, but was once the trustworthy partner, you're now kind of opening up the door to a lot of sort of, you know, problems by refusing to cooperate. You're ceding that territory to China and Russia. 
I would assume there are going to be people, I mean, I don't know how much people will inquire about vaccines, but I'm assuming if, you know, someone goes to their doctor's office and is there to get the coronavirus vaccine and then they find out, oh, this was made in, in Moscow or in Beijing, they might trust it less than if they learned it was made in the United States by an American company. And that could totally hinder people or, or like scare them away from taking the vaccine, which again, sort of makes it harder for all of us to recover because we all, or at least a large majority of the global population needs to take a vaccine that works in order for us to kind of start to get back to a sense of normality. Yeah. And I think that's true because even, you know, talking to experts for the even Russia story, I asked, you know, do you think sort of Russia's announcement will, you know, force other, you know, China or the United States to say, oh, we got to catch up. And most people I talked to said they didn't believe so, like that they very much felt, you know, whatever the politics are in the United States, that, you know, the science and the experts were strong enough here that they would make sure that when we had a vaccine out, that it would be, you know, it would follow the protocols and it would be ready. And that in some respects, being first didn't matter because then, you know, the United States could say, hey, well, we're the best, actually. So there is like an element of vaccine nationalism there as well. But um, yeah, I think there is sort of that level of trustworthiness. And if, you know, there was sort of a, a, a real global leadership to say, you know, somebody like the United States having the authority, which I don't necessarily think it necessarily would right have right now to say, you know, we're going to pool our resources and try to distribute this, um, I think is important. And I think that's sort of the, you know, the downside of this America first policy is that, yeah, okay, we know the United States is looking out for itself. That's always been the case. But before there was a sense that, you know, cooperation and even things like public health programs, you know, were a net good for the United States, for our soft power and our strategic interests. And we've totally lost sight of that right now. Yeah, that's such a smart point because it, one of the ways that the U.S. would sort of signal to the world that we are sort of a benevolent uh, power, right? That we, even though our strength of our military and economics and, and whatever it may be is like, well, we're here to help, right? We're, I mean, we're not, we may not want to be the world's policemen or there are some leaders that definitely don't want that, some do, but either way, like we're, we're sort of the world's caretaker or caregiver in a sense, right? Uh, that if things go bad, like we can provide aid, we can provide food, we can, you know, surge uh, diplomats and aid people and whatever is needed um, when things get bad. And so in a situation like this, like you would almost expect the American cavalry, like in all those old Western and World War II movies, like, you know, da -da 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 -da, and here comes America. Um, and that's missing now. Uh, and if anything, we're competing, we're not helping. Um, again, that, that's part of the environment. And like, I don't want to let Russia and China and others off the hook here. Like they don't have to be going their own way. They don't have to be, um, acting so intransigently, uh, but they could also just be taking the signal from the U.S. too. Like if the U.S. is going to go on its own and do its own thing and there's a leader, Donald Trump, who very clearly like just wants everything for America and has shown no willingness to sort of globally cooperate as evidenced by wanting to withdraw the U.S. from the World Health Organization, for example, uh, then like why would, why shouldn't they go their own way? And if, in a sense, like I'm, I'm still upset about it. I wish there was sort of a more kumbaya-ish th thing, right? I know uh, as, as naive as that sounds, but... I have trouble blaming foreign capitals for going their own way because they're not getting a signal or at all from the U.S. That, that they'll be getting any assistance down the line. Right. And I think with China and Russia, I, 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 I think that they are at least rhetorically going to make the case or try to make it seem as if they are going to be the benevolent nation and that they are going to be giving the vaccine away and they are making a global public good. So they're going to be making the case much stronger than the U.S. You know, during the Cold War, 
the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, collaborated on, you know, smallpox vaccinations. And part of the reason was, uh, if I'm understanding my history correctly, was sort of, you know, the U.S. didn't want to cede that ground to Russia. They're like, well, if you're going to do smallpox vaccinations, we're going to do them too. And so it kind of forced them to work together because they didn't want to cede ground. And you could almost see a way where the competition could be used productively if like the U.S. was like, well, China, you're going to do it? Well, we're going to do it together or something like that. And so it's interesting how, right, you're saying everyone's going in their own direction. And, you know, there are there is an attempt to do sort of a cooperative thing. It's right now kind of the closest thing is this thing called the COVAX facility. And it's essentially the idea is a bunch of sort of higher income countries will invest money in a lot of different vaccines. And then that will help you know, give some for everyone who's, you know, lower income countries and will go, you sort of, you know, everyone will get sort of a little bit of vaccine to get their, you know, frontline workers, healthcare workers. But, you know, the major powers, at least at present, the United States, China, I don't believe Russia are not involved. So that shows you where their their actual mindset is. But if you could imagine powers with a lot of resources getting behind that, how much that could actually, something like that could potentially be successful. Yeah, let's not paint maybe too dire a picture here, although I, I, <laughs> I, I love painting dire pictures. But there is, like, there's no strict firewall between a bunch of countries necessarily, right? Like, I mean, granted, when I talk to epidemiologists and public health experts, what they're saying is, yes, there should be more U.S.-China cooperation, and they find it insane that it's not happening, or U.S.-Russia cooperation, or whatever it may be. Um, they wish there was more. But there, it's not like we're at zero, and they want at least one, right? There is at least some cross-coordination so there is a sen- at least some sense of uh, global solidarity and, and, and research. But the, I think that what, what we're talking about here is not necessarily that, like, you know, no one is talking to each other. It's just that with whatever information countries have, they're going their own way with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're basically I mean, what it is, is the United States and other countries are they're basically buying these vaccine doses in advance. So when they are when a vaccine is they're putting bets in a lot of different things. So when a vaccine is approved, they'll get the doses and other countries are doing the same. But the idea of something like a COVAX would be all the countries would get together and pool their resources and invest in all of the top candidates so that because it's likely talking to experts that if everyone's kind of going this way, we'll have maybe one or two, you know, maybe for like vaccines around the same time. Um, And the idea would then it would help with affordability, which is also a critical issue when we talk about the United States, like what happens if you don't have health insurance, all kinds of things will help to kind of make it more equitable. And the idea is rather than looking at a vaccine as a political or a diplomatic or tool, it should just maybe be a global public good. And that's maybe a hard thing to square with geopolitics, but Maybe we can kind of reframe our brains to think of it that way. There could be some sort of basis for cooperation. Yeah, I mean, th- there's this notion that, uh, and it's coming a lot from this administration, that because, you know, China did delay knowledge of the coronavirus, they denied having anything to do with it, they they delayed a bunch of things, or because Russia has interfered in our election and, um, you know, tried to kill spies in the UK and and, and, and took over parts of Ukraine. Like, there, there's this belief then that, there's no place for cooperation almost in any sense that you almost must have a clean break and you have to counter until they come sort of back into compliance in the way we would want them to. And what's interesting is that when I you know, talk to most experts and you can hear this in, in the sort of a Biden rhetoric as well, is that like, yeah, we get it. There are bad countries like we get it, but there you have to cooperate in certain areas. They keep climate change is usually in the one that comes up a lot. 
But one could assume that the same mentality happens here, right? That like you could imagine an administration that had a, a mentality of like still, you know, you can sort of separate the the bad from the the needed, not even the good, right? Fine, challenge. Let's use China here. Challenge China on trade. Challenge China on the Uyghurs. Challenge China. Challenge China. That's like a weird tongue twister. Challenge China on Hong Kong. But know that you still need space to work with Chinese scientists who have access to, you know, pretty primary information about the coronavirus um, on this in order to solve this global problem. Like, that shouldn't be so hard. This is somewhat of a policy choice. Not, not somewhat. It is a policy choice by the United States to, um, to really kind of cre- create as big a firewall as possible. Yeah, and I'm and maybe a bit of an idealist here, but I think part of the problem is even if China is being sort of a bad actor when it comes to, say, the coronavirus vaccine, the only way to successfully punish them or isolate them would be if the U.S. got with all its buddies, the European Union and, you know, South Korea and Japan and said, like, hey, we're all going to get together and, you know, worked. Not only are we going to put pressure on China for its coronavirus handling, but also for Hong Kong and also for the Uyghurs. Like, to me, that's the the only way to actually you know, isolate is is only way that we can achieve any of this is through some sort of collaborative or cooperative approach. Um, And that's one of the huge problems with global health is that there is no enforcement mechanism. There's no real way to punish China for lying about the coronavirus. But the only way to even, I think, in my personal opinion, to make it slightly more effective in terms of isolating China to make sure that it feels the consequences is if everybody kind of ganged up on them. And right now, everyone's kind of punching from their own individual corners. And China's like, whatever, we're going to do what we want to do. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, in, in the Kirby Ward administration, it sounds like there would be a, <laughs> uh, which, uh, you know, it, I, w- I would happily be your number two. It, it seems clear that like having allies on board and cre- and having sort of a united front, whether it's creating a vaccine or trying to get another country to change its behavior like that is stronger than going at it alone, right? I mean, one of the big critiques of the Trump administration is not only trade war against China or, or you know, sanctions against Russia, whatever it may be, um, is that it's, or, you know, especially actions against Iran. It's like, it's very unilateral that it, it, you can't, it won't be as strong because you're going at it alone. So having allies and partners, not abandoning them um, would be useful, not only for the geopolitical tensions we've talked about, but very useful for just even uh, the future of, of vaccines and medications. And so um, maybe some sense of competition is just impossible to erase, as you alluded at the start, right? But having some sort of global movement, like instead of the U.S. going by itself and AstraZeneca and, and you know, University of Oxford, like you could imagine those, you know, like a lot of those companies or universities working together in sort of a, a cross-national style. And then it's like a U.S.-EU plus effort versus China and Russia, in which case one ours would probably be more um, efficient and and widely distributed and, and and stronger. And then over time, you not only you then you get to say to Russia and China, like, yes, we worked with others. We made the best product. You know, we look better overall Like the soft power point. Like we did it. We America came in again and worked with everyone to make things better. Um, the fact that we've blown that chance and and see and have made it more importantly, like beyond the political stuff, like health-wise, more dangerous. Like this is going to be more dangerous, right? The fact that we don't have, uh, the fact that we have like Russia out there peddling very likely nonsense and that we don't have a coordinated effort to sort of, or even the conversation to get the vaccine to where it needs to go. Um, This is like, I'm trying not to minimize this. Like, I think this is scary. I think this is a very scary moment that we're in. And, and frankly, I don't see sort of an 
not just the coronavirus, but just the, the sense of the, the global solution to it. Like, I, I just don't see a reverse. Yeah, I think it is It is sort of a crossroads. And I think, you know, you brought up climate change before. In some ways, this is kind of maybe might be a dry run for what we would need to do in something like another existential threat like climate change. And right now we're not showing that we're doing a pretty good job at it at all. But to end on a sort of optimistic note is that this is not irreversible, right? Like a lot of these countries and places and this talks about cooperation, you know, they're in their nascent stages and they can always, you know, change and turn around. And I don't necessarily know if a change in administration would do that for the United States. I certainly think Biden rhetorically will commit to things like that. Whether he will have a lot to deal with at home is another question. Um, I don't think much will change perhaps if we have the same administration, but even if, but it may. And the point is it's not irreversible and we can, the coronavirus is not going away anytime soon. Even if we get a vaccine, it's not going to be a silver bullet. We still need to, you know, are still going to need to take public health measures And, you know, it is possible that as much as it seems right now, we're taking this more nationalistic approach that, you know, countries could start to see the light and the necessity of cooperating on this. And I don't think it's too late. I think it's we're in a precarious spot, but I don't think it's too late to kind of recommit to that. And maybe we'll get to the point of desperation where we have no choice. Gosh, I want to be as uh, even that level of optimistic. I'm I'm, I'm not. I really feel like we've made a historical, political, and scientific, like, grand mistakes here. And uh, just based on, again, like, it's not just American actions. Based on the actions of other countries, um, there's just no sort of ability to put the, you know, Humpty Dumpty back together again. But I'm going to, I think we should end on Kirby optimism more than mine because, uh, or sorry, Jen's optimism more than mine, um, because that would be better and maybe we can stop our streak of ending every worldly note on like doom and destruction. So uh, (laughs) thanks again for listening. Uh, If you like our show, uh, please rate, subscribe um, wherever you get your podcast. Thank you, Jen, for joining us. Uh, It's always great to have you on the show. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, Alex. Thanks again. Of course. And uh, we'll see you all next week.